So if you've been paying attention to Exodus, we've been going back and forth. We started in Egypt. Moses then spent some time in the wilderness, and he met God on Mount Sinai. And God sent him to deliver the people. And now in our passage tonight, after Israel's been delivered, they're on their way to Mount Sinai. The center of the book, the most important part of the book, is the covenant that they they make with God at Mount Sinai. And that's coming, but they're on the way. And tonight is all about being on the way. And in particular, it's about all kinds of trials they face as they're on the way to Mount Sinai. And hopefully you caught the resonance there. All kinds of trials. Did anybody catch it? Kelly's sermon of a couple weeks ago, where James says that we should rejoice in all kinds of trials that we meet. So there's a resonance here because Israel is going to face all kinds of trials. In fact, we see that Israel is pretty fickle. They've just been singing and dancing and celebrating. And a few days later, they're whining and complaining and grumbling. They've just gone from great deliverance and great celebration to accusing God. And so we're going to see Israel in their sort of fickleness as they're on the way. Uh, as they're on the way. Well, this time on the way is all about God loving his child, his son, his firstborn son, Israel, and training them and stretching them and teaching them to trust him. As I say, they face all kinds of trials. They're going to face a crisis of having nothing to drink. They're going to face a crisis of food, another trial that has to do with not having anything to drink, They're going to be attacked by a foreign nation. And finally, they're going to have an administrative nightmare of how Moses can actually practically lead all these people and teach them and help them solve all their problems. Well, as Kelly said in James, we know that we are called to meet these things as friends, these trials as friends, because God is using them to stretch us, to deepen us, to form us as his disciples. Notice, too, that as they go to Mount Sinai, when they leave Mount Sinai after the covenant, they're going to face some identical trials. Notice, though, that on this side of the covenant, they're not punished. But on the other side, their their grumbling will be punished, right? After they've come and they've seen the glory of God and they've discovered the mercy of God, when they rebel, when they grumble, it's punished. This whole episode, the whole time in the wilderness, and this is for us, It parallels Jesus as his disciples are on the way to Jerusalem, as he's on the way to enacting the new covenant. And his disciples are quarreling and grumbling all along the way as he goes to the mountain that is the the place where he will shed his blood to establish the new covenant. Well, we're in the wilderness. Paul says explicitly, remarkably, that these scriptures were written for us, for our instruction, and we are in the wilderness. We are on the way to the Father's heavenly kingdom, and he is stretching us, and he is allowing difficulty to come into our life because he loves us. And I think one of the big overarching themes of all of this is learning to respond in joy and in the confidence that we are absolutely loved and absolutely cared for. And that God is doing things to deepen us, to mature us, to make us more like his son. So let's start in Exodus 15, 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, 
They could not drink the water because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Mara. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. So again, Israel goes from song to despair to complaining, and they get to this place of testing. They get to this water source, but the water is bitter, and they can't drink it, and that should take us all the way back to the first plague. Because when God made the water of the Nile turn to blood, nobody could drink it. And here's water that they can't drink. And in all kinds of ways, God seems to be evoking what went on in Egypt. It's undrinkable. And so they grumble and they complain. And again, I think one of the things we're called to learn is that we're not to grumble and complain. But we're to be thankful for God's care. We're to remind ourselves of God's care. And and we're to rejoice when we face trials along the way that he is using to shape us. So God shows him a log. And he throws this into the water. And and it it turns the water sweet. It makes the water drinkable. What's the log? Well, I think it's a number of things. I think it's the teaching of God. Because he goes on to say, if you will hear me and listen diligently to me. But I think it also speaks of the cross of Christ, the cross that makes the bitter waters of sin sweet, that makes things that are undrinkable and unpalatable, they bring life to us. And God is teaching his children, he's teaching Israel, he's saying, listen, if you will attend to what I say, it will bring life to you. It will bring sweetness to your souls. It will change bitterness into joy and into life. Ultimately, God is cultivating them in trust Will you trust me? Will you attend to my word? Because my word brings life. They are learning that they have real needs. Water, we will all agree, is a real need. But there's a need that's higher than that. You can have all your needs in life met and met abundantly, but not have the most important thing, which is God's teaching, his heart, his way, and the message of his son. Notice, too, that God says, If you trust me, if you listen to my voice, if you obey my commandments, I will not strike you with these diseases. He he again connects it with Israel. He says, I'm your healer. I'm the one who will bring healing into your life and overturn the curse of sin. So after God makes this water sweet, then they proceed to a place called Elam. And whenever the scripture gives you numbers like this, it's usually not just incidental and accidental. Twelve. Twelve tribes. Twelve apostles, right? It's representative of all the people of God. Seventy. There's 70 elders throughout the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. In, in, in the Gospels, Jesus sends out 12 and he sends out 70 as well. 70 in Scripture also often represents the nations. And we get to the second incident. This is uh, chapter 16. Then they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. 
And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven on you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. God goes on to institute a couple of things. First of all, he gives them manna. He gives them quail. And I think we should think of the opposites of hail and locusts, right? God rained these things down in judgment on Egypt, but on his people, he's going to rain down bread from heaven and quail. Uh, But more than that, underneath all of this, there's this sort of delusion about their past. They're like, oh, man, life was so good in Egypt. Huh? (laughs) They've forgotten what life was like in Egypt. And they're sort of preoccupied with the food they had in Egypt and how much better the food in Egypt was. It's a delusion about their former life. Would they have chosen that life if they were back there? They would have grumbled. They would have complained under what they were under in Egypt. And so God does several things here. He gives the manna, and he gives them instructions for how to gather the manna, very specific instructions. The whole chapter details the various instructions and several people who don't obey the instructions. And he also gives them the Sabbath. All these things come together. Food and rest come together. All right, here in the wilderness, that is the opposite of the Garden of Eden, where everything was at hand, where all they needed was care, was there. Here, they're called to learn to trust God every day, anew, afresh, for the food that he will give them. And they're even called to learn to, to rest with him. And think about the instructions that God gives them. First of all, it's called manna, and I just love it. It's called, what is it? What is this stuff? Second, they really have to trust God because they can't hoard it. If they, if they get more than they need and leave it over, it'll rot and stink and draw worms. All right? Everybody has what they need, so they can't hoard. They can't covet. They can't scheme and plan and strategize to secure their lives. They have to trust God to secure their lives every day. And then on the Sabbath day, God gives them enough where they can gather enough so that they can rest on the Sabbath day. So all these things go together. God feeding them. God learning, giving them rest and giving everyone, everyone and all the animals that they have rest on the Sabbath, which is all about flourishing. So in all of this, God is teaching his people to trust him as the one who wants to feed them, who wants to give them rest, who wants them to flourish who wants them to know life and to know it abundantly. And specifically in this section, it says, tomorrow I am going to show you my glory. My glory is going to be manifest. This is apparently the cloud went away after, the, after going through the Red Sea, but the manifestation of God's glory is going to come. But it's really important in the Old Testament when the glory of God appears, it's either the visible glory of God or, or in addition, manifestation of the character of God. And this is what's at stake here. It's the character of God. In the Gospel of John, when Jesus does his first miracle at this small wedding and provides the best wine anybody's ever had for this wedding in great abundance, 120 gallons of it, it says he manifested his glory to his disciples. 
What is the, the glory that he manifested? His desire to bless. His desire to give. His desire to bring flourishing and joy. And his humility that he didn't, Jesus in that case, need to draw attention to it. I think all of this goes together to show that Israel is learning to think of God. They're being stretched to think of God as generous, as wanting to give his people life and flourishing. He wants to give them so much, and he calls them to trust him to give it to them, to trust that Sabbath will give it, to trust that provisioning of their daily bread will give it. And by the way, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, in that prayer it says, give us this day our daily bread. Jesus is talking about that manna, which points to him, who is the bread that came down from heaven. God wants to give his people a life without lack. And he calls us to learn to trust him daily for that kind of life. Chapter 17, we get another crisis of water. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah. Because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? This scene is really important. It says they test the Lord. Israel, God is testing them. He's stretching them. He's maturing them. But they test the Lord. Basically, they, they want to force God's hand and they want to say, God, prove that you care about us. Prove that you care about us. And notice in this, there's an implicit impugning of God's character, all right? I said that this whole time in the wilderness was for their stretching and their maturing and their deepening. They still think of God as out to get them and zap them. They still interpret difficulties in their lives as God's displeasure. Is God displeased with them? He's not. He's trying to grow his children up. He's trying to mature his people. But they impugn his character and testing God is when we say, God, prove that you love me. Now, Israel had a lot of evidence that God loved them. They had the plagues in Egypt. They had God hearing their cry in the first place. They had the journey through the Red Sea. They had so much evidence that God loved them, and they were not living on that evidence. And that's part of why um, this is a sin. This is testing God. Again, asking God to prove himself. And then they, God gives them this rock to strike. And, of course, Paul tells us in the New Testament that this rock was Christ. That this rock is smitten and it gives them life or it gives them water. And all through Scripture, there's this association between living water and God's teaching. Psalm 1 talks about, uh, talks about the man who meditates on God's word being like a tree planted by living waters. 
Because God's teaching bring living waters. The water that trickles from the temple in the book of Ezekiel becomes this flood of living water that brings life and healing wherever it goes. And of course, Jesus is the rock that was smitten on the cross, and out of his side flows blood and water, and he imparts to his people the Holy Spirit. Because again, we need more than water. We need more than bread. We need the Holy Spirit of God. So the name of the place is Massa and Meribah, because Massa and Meribah mean testing and quarreling. They quarreled with Moses, and they tried to test God. Now we get another kind of problem. We get a full-on attack on the people of Israel. This is 1710. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. Sorry, I'm skipping ahead to the essential part. This is verse 10. While Moses and Aaron and Hur went up on the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hands, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on the one side and one on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built on the altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner." saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So they have this unprovoked attack. They have a military attack, and they have to go fight for the first time. And this is the first appearance of Joshua, or this is the first time he appears. He's going to be the warrior that leads Israel into the promised land. Who is Amalek? They're really important in Scripture, and they come up repeatedly. They're descendants of Esau. And remember, Esau had a grudge with his brother, but they eventually reconciled. But perhaps the people of Amalek continue to carry this this grudge. Maybe they're something like Cain, who who was jealous of his brother and his righteous deeds and killed him. And all through scripture, they're going to appear. In fact, it's because Saul didn't wipe out the Amalekites that the kingship is taken from him. Uh, And they'll even appear in the book of Esther. So they're sort of perennial enemies of the people of God. Um, bearing a grudge, jealous. Uh, They want to kill him. We're not even given a reason why they attacked Israel. And the key to the scene is Moses holding up his hands. And it's often said that this is about prayer. And I think probably there's something to that. But it doesn't say he prays. It says his hands are extended up high. And at the end of the passage, it says that the Lord is my banner. I think there's something to that. I think that Uh, It's a reminder of Yahweh's favor on the people of God. It says his hands on the throne. It's a way of, of, of extending hands in prayer. It's a way of appealing to God's favor for the peop- toward the people of God. And I do think it speaks of the fact that as Christians, our hope is in the fact that Jesus Christ is praying for us even now. That all prayer that Christians partake in partakes in that prayer. The one who has risen from the dead, who has conquered all of the most important enemies, and who has promised our own participation in that conquest. I think it's important to note, too, that Moses can't do this by himself. He can't, do, he can't hold up the banner by himself. He needs Aaron, who is the foundation of the priesthood, and he needs her, who's from the tribe of Judah, who probably represents kingship that's ultimately coming to Israel. Moses the prophet needs Aaron the priest, 
and her, uh, the, the line of the future king, uh, there with him. So Moses couldn't do these things alone. And note that this is the first time God tells Moses to write anything down. He says, write this down. Amalek needs to be dealt with thoroughly because they attacked my beloved son. They're acting like Pharaoh before them. So I would suggest that the the key to this passage is the understanding that Christ is our banner. Christ is the key to our victory. And his death, his resurrection, his ascension is what allows us to participate in his victory over the world. In 1 John, John tells the people that we have overcome the world and that our overcoming, our victory over the world is our faith, our faith in the risen Christ. That's our victory over any enemy, and the Scripture tells us that the people of God will always have enemies. Finally, we get uh, this scene with Jethro. This is in chapter 18 when, uh, when Jethro returns with Moses' wife and his two sons. It says this in verse 7. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare, and they went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardships that had come upon them along the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced in all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because, this affair, uh, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, and Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses and his father-in-law before God. So remember, Moses, excuse me, Jethro, he's not a Jew. He is a descendant of Abraham, but he's not a descendant, um, he's not a descendant of the promise. He's just a, he's a relative. So he's a pagan in a sense, or he's a righteous non-Jew. He seems to believe in the God of Israel. And again, I think he's put here because it's a contrast to Amalek. Amalek is a Gentile who hates the people of God. Jethro is a Gentile who believes that the God of Israel is the God of all. All right? I think they're put there as a contrast to one another. And notice that they have this, this same encounter. Do you all remember the sermon of, I don't remember how many weeks ago it was, when Carl Peters was with us. He said that there's this biblical pattern of worship. That biblical pattern of worship happens here. Aaron, or excuse me, Moses and his father-in-law meet. Moses declares all that God has done. He, he basically preaches. Aaron, excuse me, did it again. Jethro celebrates all of this, and they have a sacrificial meal together. And apparently, it's okay for, for his father-in-law, who's not a Jew, to offer up this worship. They have a worship that, um, and a meal, a sacrificial meal that anticipates the worship in the temple. And then at the end of all of this, at the end of 18, Jethro goes home. And I think we can assume that there's something about the carrying forth of the message of who God is. So as Kelly shared in the book of Daniel, there's kings who get it, non-Jewish kings who get it, unbelievers who see that the God of Israel um, is the true God and offer up worship that God accepts. Finally, we get to one last incident here. This is in 1813. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. 
When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you were doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their causes to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them known the way, uh, make known the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, And place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people will also go to their place in peace. So... Here we have an incident where there's a kind of a problem. I mean, and Moses is getting worn out and the people are getting worn out. And notice, God doesn't tell Moses what to do. This is an incident where God doesn't tell him what to do. Who tells him what to do? His pagan, non-Jewish father-in-law. And he says, and this is so interesting to me, he says, what you're doing is not good. It's the exact same expression. It was not good for the man to be alone. All right? Something very similar is going on here. We can and should learn from wisdom wherever it is found, even if it is found outside the church, or in Moses' case, outside of Israel. He's called to build institutions. He's called to build a society that has a way of running that, as he says at the end of it, will bring peace. And I think this is such an important insight because we want to know God's will. We seek God's will. We pray. We pray for signs and confirmation. But sometimes God does not tell us what to do. And I think this is teaching us that we should seek wisdom wherever it is found. And it can be found in sources that perhaps we wouldn't think of. So there's something significant about the fact that Moses is called through the wisdom of his father-in-law to build institutions in Israel, to build offices and and. Um, people who are just and righteous and who know the ways of God, who can rule the people. And I think that it says a lot of things about Moses, but one of the things I would note is it says it's a sign of Moses' humility, that Moses can hear wisdom from a source that maybe you wouldn't expect him to hear it from. Who are you? I'm I'm the man of God. I mean, I talk to God face to face. What are you telling me what to do, right? He can hear wisdom from a source that you might not expect, and he can cede authority. I remember the incident later on at the, on the other side of Sinai when the Spirit of God falls on 70 of the elders. And uh, Joshua says, hey, you know, the Spirit fell on these two guys who didn't join us. And Moses says, are you crazy? I wish the Spirit of God would fall on all the people of God. We see Moses' heart as a leader. He wants all of the people to share responsibility, to have a share in the Spirit, and to lead and share the burden of the people of God. So, 
we, in these scenes, we see that Israel is on this route where God is trying to mature them and stretch them and deepen them. And God is doing the same for us. Every single difficult situation in your life, everyone, God allows to deepen you, to stretch you, to help you learn to trust him and obey him. We're learning in our lives to look to him to provide for our needs. We're learning to see the trials that occur in our life as signs of favor. That's one of the things I appreciated about Kelly's sermon, meet it as a friend. All right, these things that happen in our lives that are difficult are signs of his favor because as a father, he's maturing us. Because he loves us, he's allowing difficulties in our lives to help us grow in trust and maturity in him. We're learning to put his teachings into practice and his teachings, Jesus' teachings, bring life. When we learn to forgive, when we learn to love, we find a confidence that we're the children of God. When we learn to give ourselves to others in service, we grow in this sense of who God is and what he's about. We're learning to trust the ultimate victory of Jesus over sin and death and hell. And the resurrection, and this is, this is about that victory that Moses had, the resurrection does two things. It helps us love people. It helps us have the power and the confidence to love unlovable people. So we're called to do this. We talked about last week, right? That Passover was about teaching them to live a certain kind of life. And that communion is about teaching us to love one another. The other thing it does is it gives us the grace and the ability that maybe we might have to give our lives unto death. But if we give our lives unto death in love, there's resurrection on the other side. That's the power of the resurrection. And finally, we're learning to find wisdom everywhere he's allowed it to be. Amen? So as we come to the table, I just want to call to mind where we see Christ in all of this. Because remember on the road to Emmaus, Jesus says, listen, all of these scriptures speak of me. And Jesus went and pointed it out. We see Christ, I think, in that wood that was thrown into the water to make it sweet. As Christ's cross makes the waters of sin sweet. He's the bread that comes down from heaven, and he says this repeatedly and significantly in the Gospel of John. He's the Lord of the Sabbath, who created Sabbath, what? For us, for the blessing of mankind, for the strengthening of mankind. He's the the one that brings new wine. He's the rock that is struck to bring forth water. He's the rock that was pierced to bring forth the Holy Spirit over his people. He's our banner. He's our victory, and our trust in him is our key to victory over the world. He's our worship leader, right? We worship. I'm not the worship leader. Peter's not the worship leader. Jesus himself is the one who brings us before the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's the one that gathers us. He's the one that shares his covenant with us. He's the one that gives this meal to us and sends us out to be his people in the earth. And finally, Jesus is our wisdom. All right, in Christ Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And you can find his treasures in science. You can find his treasures in the wisdom of people that don't even know him. You can find his treasures, especially in his word. But everywhere, he is our wisdom. Amen?